Section 15 of the Christmas Books. The Battle of Life, Chapter 3. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. The Battle of Life by Charles Dickens, Part the Third. The world had grown six years older since that night of the return. It was a warm autumn afternoon, and there had been heavy rain. The sun burst suddenly from among the clouds, and the old battleground sparkling brilliantly and cheerfully at sight of it in one green place, flashed a responsive welcome there, which spread along the countryside as if a joyful beacon had been lighted up and answered from a thousand stations. How beautiful the landscape kindling in the light, and that luxuriant influence passing on like a celestial presence, brightening everything! The wood, a sombre mass before, revealed its varied tints of yellow, green, brown, red, its different forms of trees, with raindrops glittering on their leaves and twinkling as they fell. The verdant meadowland, bright and glowing, seemed as if it had been blind a minute since, and now had found a sense of sight wherewith to look up at the shining sky. Cornfields, hedgerows, fences, homesteads, the clustered roofs, the steeple of the church, the stream, the watermill, all sprung out of the gloomy darkness, smiling. Birds sang sweetly, flowers raised their drooping heads, fresh scents arose from the invigorated ground, the blue expanse above extended and diffused itself, Already the sun's slanting rays pierced mortally the sullen bank of cloud that lingered in its flight, and a rainbow, spirit of all the colours that adorn the earth and sky, spanned the whole arch with its triumphant glory. At such a time, one little roadside inn, snugly sheltered behind a great elm-tree, with a rare seat for idlers encircling its capricious bowl, addressed a cheerful front towards the traveller, as a house of entertainment ought, and tempted him with many mute but significant assurances of a comfortable welcome. The ruddy signboard, perched up in the tree, with its golden letters winking in the sun, ogled the passer-by from among the green leaves, like a jolly face, and promised good cheer. The horse-trough, full of clear, fresh water, and the ground below it sprinkled with droppings of fragrant hay, made every horse that passed prick up his ears. The crimson curtains in the lower rooms and the pure white hangings in the little bedchambers above beckoned come in with every breath of air. Upon the bright green shutters there were golden legends about beer and ale, and neat wines and good beds, and an affecting picture of a brown jug frothing over at the top. Upon the window-sills were flowering plants in bright red pots, which made a lively show against the white front of the house, and in the darkness of the doorway there were streaks of light which glanced off from the surfaces of bottles and tankards. On the doorstep appeared a proper figure of a landlord, too, for though he was a short man, he was round and broad, and stood with his hands in his pockets, and his legs just wide enough apart to express a mind at rest upon the subject of the cellar, and an easy confidence, too calm and virtuous to become a swagger in the general resources of the inn. The superabundant moisture, trickling from everything after the late rain, set him off well. Nothing near him was thirsty. 
certain top-heavy dahlias, looking over the palings of his neat, well-ordered garden, had swilled as much as they could carry, perhaps a trifle more, and may have been the worse for liquor, but the sweet-briar roses' wallflowers, the plants at the windows, and the leaves on the old tree, were in the beaming state of moderate company that had taken no more than was wholesome for them, and had served to develop their best qualities. Sprinkling dewy drops about them on the ground, they seemed profuse of innocent and sparkling mirth, that did good where it lighted, softening neglected corners which the steady rain could seldom reach, and hurting nothing. This village inn had assumed, on being established, an uncommon sign. It was called the Nutmeg Grater, and underneath that household word was inscribed up in the tree on the same flaming board and in the like golden characters by Benjamin Britton. At a second glance, and on a more minute examination of his face, you might have known that it was no other than Benjamin Britton himself who stood in the doorway, reasonably changed by time, but for the better, a very comfortable host indeed. "'Mrs. B.,' said Mr. Britton, looking down the road, "'it's rather late. It's tea-time.' As there was no Mrs. Britton coming, he strolled leisurely out into the road and looked up at the house, very much to his satisfaction. "'It's just the sort of house,' said Benjamin, "'I should wish to stop at if I didn't keep it.' Then he strolled towards the garden paling, and took a look at the dahlias. They looked over him, with a helpless, drowsy hanging of their heads, which bobbed again as the heavy drops of wet dripped off them. "'You must be looked after,' said Benjamin. "'Memorandum not to forget to tell her so. She's a long time coming.' Mr. Britton's better half seemed to be by so very much his better half that his own moiety of himself was utterly cast away and helpless without her. "'She hadn't much to do, I think,' said Ben. "'There were very few little matters of business after market, but not many. Oh, here we are at last.' A chaise-cart, driven by a boy, came clattering along the road, and seated in it, in a chair, with a large, well-saturated umbrella spread out to dry behind her, was the plump figure of a matronly woman, with her bare arms folded across a basket which she carried on her knee, several other baskets and parcels lying crowded about her, and a certain bright good nature in her face and contented awkwardness in her manner, as she jogged to and fro with the motion of her carriage, which smacked of old times even in the distance. Upon her nearer approach, this relish of bygone days was not diminished, and when the cart stopped at the nutmeg-grater door, a pair of shoes alighting from it slipped nimbly through Mr. Britton's open arms, and came down with a substantial weight upon the pathway, which shoes could hardly have belonged to any one but Clemency Newcomb. In fact, they did belong to her and she stood in them, and a rosy, comfortable-looking soul she was, with as much soap in her glossy face as in times of yore, but with whole elbows now, that had grown quite dimpled in her improved condition. "'You're late, Clemmy,' said Mr. Britton. "'Why, you see, Ben, I've had a deal to do,' she replied, looking busily after the safe removal into the house of all the packages and baskets. Eight, nine, ten. where's eleven? Oh, my baskets. Eleven. It's all right. Put the horse up, Harry, and if he coughs again, give him a warm mash to-night. 
eight, nine, ten. Why, where's eleven? Oh, I forgot. It's all right. How's the children, Ben? Hearty, clemmy, hearty. Bless their precious faces, said Mrs. Britton, unbonneting her own round countenance, for she and her husband were by this time in the bar, and smoothing her hair with her open hands. Give us a kiss, old man. Mr. Britton promptly complied. "'I think,' said Mrs. Britton, applying herself to her pockets and drawing forth an immense bulk of thin books and crumpled papers, a very kennel of dog's ears, "'I've done everything. Bills all settled, turnips sold, brewer's account looked into and paid, bacco-pipes ordered, seventeen pound four paid into the bank, Dr. Heathfield's charge for little Clem—you'll guess what that is. Dr. Heathfield won't take nothing again, Ben.' "'I thought he wouldn't,' returned Britton. "'No.' He says, whatever family you was to have, Ben, he'd never put you to the cost of a halfpenny, not if you was to have twenty. Mr. Britton's face assumed a serious expression, and he looked hard at the wall. Ain't it kind of him? said Clemency. Very, returned Mr. Britton. It's the sort of kindness that I wouldn't presume upon on any account. No, retorted Clemency, of course not. Then there's the pony. He fetched eight pound two, and that ain't bad, is it? It's very good, said Ben. "'I'm glad you're pleased,' exclaimed his wife. "'I thought you would be. "'And I think that's all. "'And so no more at present from yours and setter C. Britain. "'Ha, ha, ha! "'There. "'Take all the papers and lock them. "'Oh, wait a minute. "'Here's a printed bill to stick on the wall. "'Wet from the printers. "'How nice it smells!' "'What's this?' said Ben, looking over the document. "'I don't know,' replied his wife. "'I haven't read a word of it.' "'To be sold by auction,' read the host of the nutmeg grater unless previously disposed of by private contract. They always put that, said Clemency. Yes, but they don't always put this, he returned. Look here. Mansion, etc. Offices, etc. Shrubberies, etc. Ring fence, etc. Mr. Snitchley and Craggs, etc. Ornamental potion of the uncumbered freehold property of Michael Warden, Esquire, intending to continue to reside abroad. Intending to consider to reside abroad? repeated Clemency. Here it is, said Mr. Britton. Look. And it was only this very day that I heard it whispered at the old house that better and plainer news had been half promised of her soon, said Clemency, shaking her head sorrowfully, and patting her elbows as if the recollection of old times unconsciously awakened her old habits. Dear, 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 there'll be heavy hearts, Ben, yonder. Mr. Britton heaved a sigh and shook his head, and said he couldn't make it out. He had left off trying long ago. With that remark he applied himself to putting up the bill just inside the bar window, and Clemency, after meditating in silence for a few moments, roused herself, cleared her thoughtful brow, and bustled off to look after the children. Though the host of the nutmeg-grater had a lively regard for his good wife, it was of the old patronizing kind, and she amused him mightily. Nothing would have astonished him so much as to have known for certain from any third party that it was she who managed the whole house, and made him, by her plain straightforward thrift, good humour, honesty, and industry, a thriving man. So easy it is, in any degree of life, as the world very often finds it, to take those cheerful natures that never assert their merit at their own modest valuation, and to conceive a flippant liking of people for their outward oddities and eccentricities, whose innate worth, if we would look so far, might make us blush in the comparison. 
It was comfortable to Mr. Britton to think of his own condescension in having married Clemency. She was a perpetual testimony to him of the goodness of his heart, and the kindness of his disposition, and he felt that her being an excellent wife was an illustration of the old precept that virtue is its own reward. He had finished wafering up the bill, and had locked the vouchers for her day's proceeding in the cupboard, chuckling all the time over her capacity for busyness, when returning with the news that the two master Britons were playing in the coach-house under the superintendence of one Betsy, and that little Clem was sleeping like a picture, she sat down to tea, which had awaited her arrival on a little table. It was a very neat little bar, with the usual display of bottles and glasses, a sedate clock right to the minute, it was half-past five, everything in its place, and everything furbished and polished up to the very utmost. "'It's the very first time I've sat down quietly to-day, I declare,' said Mrs. Britton, taking a long breath, as if she had sat down for the night, but getting up again immediately to hand her husband his tea and cut him his bread and butter." How that bill does set me thinking of old times! Ah, said Mr. Britton, handling his saucer like an oyster, and disposing of its contents on the same principle. That same Mr. Michael Warden, said Clemency, shaking her head at the notice of sale, lost me my old place. And got you your husband, said Mr. Britton. Well, so he did, retorted Clemency, and many thanks to him. "'Man's the creature of habit,' said Mr. Britton, surveying her over his saucer. "'I had somehow got used to you, Clem, and I found I shouldn't be able to get on without you. So we went and got made man and wife. Ha, <laughs> ha! We! Who'd have thought it?' "'Who, indeed?' cried Clemency. "'It was very good of you, Ben.' "'No, no, no,' replied Mr. Britton, with an air of self-denial. "'Nothing worth mentioning.' "'Oh, yes, it was, Ben,' said his wife, with great simplicity. "'I'm sure I think so, and am very much obliged to you. "'Ah,' looking again at the bill, "'when she was known to be gone and out of reach, dear girl, "'I couldn't help telling, for her sake quite as much as theirs, "'what I knew, could I?' "'You told it, anyhow,' observed her husband. "'And Dr. Jedler,' pursued Clemency, putting down her teacup and looking thoughtfully at the bill, "'in his grief and passion, turned me out of house and home. "'I never have been so glad of anything in all my life as that I didn't say an angry word to him, "'and hadn't an angry feeling towards him even then, for he repented that truly afterwards. "'How often he has sat in this room and told me over and over again he was sorry for it.' the last time only yesterday when you were out. How often he has sat in this room and talked to me, hour after hour, about one thing and another in which he made believe to be interested, but only for the sake of the days that are gone away, and because he knows she used to like me, Ben. Why, how did you ever come to catch a glimpse of that, Clem? asked her husband, astonished that she should have a distinct perception of a truth which had only dimly suggested itself to his inquiring mind. "'I don't know, I'm sure,' said Clemency, blowing her tea to cool it. "'Bless you, I couldn't tell you if you was to offer me a reward of a hundred pound.' He might have pursued this metaphysical subject but for her catching a glimpse of a substantial fact behind him, in the shape of a gentleman attired in mourning, and cloaked and booted like a rider on horseback, who stood at the bar-door. He seemed attentive to their conversation, and not at all impatient to interrupt it. 
Clemency hastily rose at this sight. Mr. Britton also rose and saluted the guest. "'Will you please to walk upstairs, sir? There's a very nice room upstairs, sir.' "'Thank you,' said the stranger, looking earnestly at Mr. Britton's wife. "'May I come in here?' "'Oh, surely, if you like, sir,' returned Clemency, admitting him. "'What would you please to want, sir?' The bill had caught his eye, and he was reading it. "'Excellent property, that, sir,' observed Mr. Britton. He made no answer, but turning round when he had finished reading, looked on Clemency with the same observant curiosity as before. "'You are asking me,' he said, still looking at her. "'What would you please to take, sir?' answered Clemency, stealing a glance at him in return. "'If you will let me have a draught of ale,' he said, moving to a table by the window, "'and will let me have it here without being any interruption to your meal, I shall be much obliged to you.' He sat down as he spoke, without any further parley, and looked out at the prospect. He was an easy, well-knit figure of a man in the prime of life. His face, much browned by the sun, was shaded by a quantity of dark hair, and he wore a moustache. His beer being set before him, he filled out a glass and drank good-humouredly to the house, adding, as he put the tumbler down again, "'It's a new house, is it not?' "'Not particularly new, sir,' replied Mr. Britton. "'Between five and six years old,' said Clemency, speaking very distinctly. "'I think I heard you mention Dr. Jedler's name as I came in,' inquired the stranger. "'That bill reminds me of him, for I happen to know something of that story by hearsay, and through certain connections of mine. Is the old man living?' "'Yes, he's living, sir,' said Clemency. "'Much changed?' "'Since when, sir?' returned Clemency, with remarkable emphasis and expression. "'Since his daughter went away.' "'Yes, he's greatly changed since then,' said Clemency. "'He's grey and old, and hasn't the same way with him at all. But I think he's happy now. He has taken on with his sister since then, and goes to see her very often. That did him good directly. At first he was sadly broken down, and it was enough to make one's heart bleed to see him wandering about, railing at the world. But a great change for the better came over him after a year or two, and then he began to like to talk about his lost daughter, and to praise her, ay, and the world, too, and was never tired of saying, with the tears in his poor eyes, how beautiful and good she was. He had forgiven her then. That was about the same time as Miss Grace's marriage. Britain, you remember? Mr. Britain remembered very well. The sister is married, then, returned the stranger. He paused for some time before he asked, To whom? Clemency narrowly escaped oversetting the tea-board in her emotion at this question. Did you never hear? she said. I should like to hear, he replied, as he filled his glass again and raised it to his lips. "'Ah, it would be a long story if it was properly told,' said Clemency, resting her chin on the palm of her left hand, and supporting that elbow on her right hand as she shook her head and looked back through the intervening years, as if she were looking at a fire. "'It would be a long story, I am sure, but told as a short one,' suggested the stranger. "'Told as a short one,' repeated Clemency on the same thoughtful tone, and without any apparent reference to him or consciousness of having auditors. "'What would there be to tell? They that grieved together and remembered her together like a person dead, they that were so tender of her, never would reproach her, called her back to one another as she used to be, and found excuses for her. Every one knows that, I'm sure I do.' 
"'No one better,' added Clemency, wiping her eyes with her hand. "'And so?' suggested the stranger. "'And so,' said Clemency, taking him up mechanically and without any change in her attitude or manner, "'they at last were married. They were married on her birthday. It comes round again to-morrow. Very quiet, very humble-like, but very happy.' mr alfred said one night when they were walking in the orchard grace shall our wedding day be marion's birthday and it was and they lived happily ever after said the stranger ay said clemency no two people ever more so they have had no sorrow but this she raised her head as with a sudden attention to the circumstances under which she was recalling these events and looked quickly at the stranger seeing that his face was turned towards the window and that he seemed intent upon the prospect she made some eager signs to her husband and pointed to the bill and moved her mouth as if she were repeating with great energy one word or phrase to him over and over again as she uttered no sound and as her dumb motions like most of her gestures were of a very extraordinary kind this unintelligible conduct reduced Mr. Britton to the confines of despair. He stared at the table, at the stranger, at the spoons, at his wife, following her pantomime with looks of deep amazement and perplexity, asked in the same language, was it property in danger, was it he in danger, was it she, answering her signals with other signals expressive of the deepest distress and confusion, followed the motions of her lips, guessed half aloud, milk and water, monthly warning, mice and walnuts, and couldn't approach her meaning. Clemency gave it up at last, as a hopeless attempt, and moving her chair by very slow degrees a little nearer to the stranger, sat with her eyes apparently cast down, but glancing sharply at him now and then, waiting until he should ask some other question. She had not long to wait, for he said presently, "'And what is the after-history of the young lady who went away?' "'They know it, I suppose.' Clemency shook her head. "'I've heard,' she said, "'that Dr. Jedler is thought to know more of it than he tells.' Miss Grace has had letters from her sister saying that she was well and happy, and made much happier by her being married to Mr. Alfred, and has written letters back, but there's a mystery about her life and fortunes altogether which nothing has cleared up to this hour, and which—she faltered here and stopped. "'And which?' repeated the stranger. "'Which only one other person, I believe, could explain,' said Clemency, drawing her breath quickly. "'Who may that be?' asked the stranger. "'Mr. Michael Warden,' answered Clemency, almost in a shriek, at once conveying to her husband what she would have had him understand before, and letting Michael Warden know that he was recognized. "'You remember me, sir,' said Clemency, trembling with emotion. "'I saw just now you did. You remember me that night in the garden. I was with her.' "'Yes, you were,' he said. "'Yes, sir,' returned Clemency. "'Yes, to be sure. This is my husband, if you please.' "'Ben, my dear Ben, run to Miss Grace, run to Mr. Alfred, run somewhere, Ben, bring somebody here directly.' "'Stay,' said Michael Warden, quietly interposing himself between the door and Mr. Britton. "'What would you do?' 
"'Let them know that you are here, sir,' answered Clemency, clapping her hands in sheer agitation. "'Let them know that they may hear of you from your own lips. Let them know that she is not quite lost to them, but that she will come home again, yet, to bless her father and her loving sister, even her old servant, even me!' She struck herself upon the breast with both hands. With a sight of her sweet face, run, Ben, run! And still she pressed him on towards the door, and still Mr. Warden stood before it with his hand stretched out, not angrily, but sorrowfully. "'Or perhaps,' said Clemency, running past her husband and catching at her emotion at Mr. Warden's cloak, "'perhaps she's here now. Perhaps she's close by. I think from your manner she is. Let me see her, sir, if you please. I waited on her when she was a little child. I saw her grow to be the pride of all this place. I knew her when she was Mr. Alfred's promised wife. I tried to warn her when you tempted her away. I knew what her old home was when she was like the soul of it, and how it changed when she was gone and lost. Let me speak to her if you please he gazed at her with compassion not unmixed with wonder but he made no gesture of assent i don't think she can know pursued clemency how truly they forgive her how they love her what joy it would be to them to see her once more she may be timorous of going home perhaps if she sees me it may give her new heart only tell me truly mr warden is she with you she is not he answered shaking his head this answer, and his manner, and his black dress, and his coming back so quietly, and his announced intention of continuing to live abroad, explained it all. Marian was dead. He didn't contradict her. Yes, she was dead. Clemency sat down, hid her face upon the table, and cried. At that moment a grey-headed old gentleman came running in quite out of breath, and panting so much that his voice was scarcely to be recognised as the voice of Mr. Stitchley. "'Good heaven, Mr. Warden,' said the lawyer, taking him aside. "'What wind has blown?' He was so blown himself that he couldn't get on any further until after a pause, when he added feebly, "'You hear?' "'An ill wind, I am afraid,' he answered. "'If you could have heard what has just passed—' how I have been besought and entreated to perform impossibilities, what confusion and affliction I carry with me. I can guess it all. But why did you ever come here, my good sir? retorted Snitchley. Come, how should I know who kept the house? When I sent my servant on to you, I strolled in here because the place was new to me, and I had a natural curiosity in everything new and old in these old scenes, and it was outside the town." i wanted to communicate with you first before appearing there i wanted to know what people would say to me i see by your manner that you can tell me if it were not for your confounded caution i should have been possessed of everything long ago our caution returned the lawyer speaking for self and craggs deceased here mr snitchley glanced at his hat-band shook his head how can you reasonably blame us, Mr. Warden? It was understood between us that the subject was never to be renewed, and that it wasn't a subject on which grave and sober men like us—I made a note of your observation at the time—could interfere. Our caution, too, when Mr. Craig, sir, went down to his respected grave in the full belief—'I had given a solemn promise of silence until I should return, whatever that might be,' interrupted Mr. Warden, and I have kept it. "'Well, sir, and I repeat it,' returned Mr. Snitchley, 
we were bound to silence too we were bound to silence in our duty towards ourselves and in our duty towards a variety of clients you among them who were as close as wax it was not our place to make inquiries of you on such a delicate subject i had my suspicion sir but it is not six months since i have known the truth and have been assured that you lost her by whom inquired his client by dr jedler himself sir who at last reposed that confidence in me voluntarily. He, and only he, has known the whole truth, years and years.' "'And you know it?' said his client. "'I do, sir,' replied Snitchley. "'And I have also reason to know that it will be broken to her sister to-morrow evening. They have given her that promise. In the meantime, perhaps you'll give me the honour of your company at my house, being unexpected at your own.' but not to run the chance of any more such difficulties as you have had here, in case you should be recognised. Though you're a good deal changed, I think I might have passed you myself, Mr. Warden. We had better dine here and walk on in the evening. It's a very good place to dine at, Mr. Warden. Your own property, by the by, self and Craggs, deceased, took a chop here sometimes, and had it very comfortably served. Mr. Craig, sir— said Stitchley, shutting his eyes tight for an instant and opening them again, was struck off the roll of life too soon. "'Heaven forgive me for not condoling with you,' returned Michael Warden, passing his hand across his forehead. "'But I'm like a man in a dream at present. I seem to want my wits. Mr. Craggs, yes, I am very sorry we have lost Mr. Craggs.' But he looked at Clemency as he said it, and seemed to sympathize with Ben, consoling her. "'Mr. Craig, sir,' observed Stitchley, "'didn't find life, I regret to say, as easy to have and to hold as his theory made it out, or he would have been among us now. It's a great loss to me. He was my right arm, my right leg, my right ear, my right eye was Mr. Craig's. I am paralytic without him. He bequeathed his share of the business to Mrs. Craig's, her executors, administrators, and assigns. His name remains in the firm to this hour.' I try in a childish sort of way to make believe sometimes that he's alive. You may observe that I speak for self and Craig's deceased, sir, deceased, said the tender-hearted attorney, waving his pocket-handkerchief. Michael Warden, who had still been observant of clemency, turned to Mr. Snitchley when he ceased to speak, and whispered in his ear. "'Ah, poor thing,' said Snitchley, shaking his head. "'Yes. She was always very faithful to Marian. She was always very fond of her.' "'Pretty Marian! Poor Marian! Cheer up, mistress! You are married now, you know, Clemency!' Clemency only sighed and shook her head. "'Well, well!' "'Wait till to-morrow,' said the lawyer kindly. "'To-morrow can't bring the dead to life, mister,' said Clemency, sobbing. "'No, it can't do that, or it would bring back Mr. Craig's deceased,' returned the lawyer. "'But it may bring some soothing circumstances.' It may bring some comfort. Wait till to-morrow. So Clemency, shaking his proffered hand, said that she would, and Britain, who had been terribly cast down at sight of his despondent wife, which was like the business hanging its head, said that was right. And Mr. Stitchley and Michael Warden went upstairs, and there they were soon engaged in a conversation so cautiously conducted that no murmur of it was audible above the clatter of plates and dishes the hissing of the frying-pan the bubbling of saucepans the low monotonous waltzing of the jack with a dreadful click every now and then as if it had met with some mortal accident to its head 
in a fit of giddiness, and all the other preparations in the kitchen for their dinner. Tomorrow was a bright and peaceful day, and nowhere were the autumn tints more beautifully seen than from the quiet orchard of the doctor's house. The snows of many winter nights had melted from that ground, the withered leaves of many summer times had rustled there since she had fled. The honeysuckle porch was green again, the trees cast bountiful and changing shadows on the grass, the landscape was as tranquil and serene as it had ever been. But where was she? Not there, not there. She would have been a stranger sight in her old home now even than the home had been at first without her. But a lady sat in the familiar place from whose heart she had never passed away, in whose true memory she lived unchanging, youthful, radiant with all promise and all hope, in whose affection, and it was a mother's now, there was a cherished little daughter playing by her side, she had no rival, no successor, upon whose gentle lips her name was trembling then. The spirit of the lost girl looked out of those eyes. Those eyes of Grace, her sister, sitting with her husband in the orchard on their wedding day, and his and Marian's birthday. He had not become a great man. He had not grown rich. He had not forgotten the scenes and friends of his youth. He had not fulfilled any one of the doctor's old predictions. But in his useful, patient, unknown visiting of poor men's homes, and in his watching of sick beds, and in his daily knowledge of the gentleness and goodness flowering the by-paths of the world, not to be trodden down beneath the heavy foot of poverty, but springing up elastic in its track, and making its way beautiful, he had better learned and proved in each succeeding year the truth of his old faith. The manner of his life, though quiet and remote, had shown him how often men still entertained angels, unawares as in the olden time, and how the most unlikely forms, even some that were mean and ugly to the view and poorly clad, became irradiated by the coach of sorrow, want, and pain, and changed to ministering spirits with a glory round their heads. He lived to better purpose on the altered battleground, perhaps, that if he had contended restlessly in more ambitious lists, and he was happy with his wife, dear Grace. And Marian, had he forgotten her? The time has flown, dear Grace, he said, since then. They had been talking of that night. And yet it seems a long, long while ago. We count by changes and events within us, not by years. Yes, we have years to count by, too, since Marian was with us, returned Grace. Six times, dear husband, counting to-night as one, we have sat here on her birthday and spoken together of that happy return, so eagerly expected and so long deferred. Ah, when will it be? When will it be? Her husband attentively observed her as the tears collected in her eyes, and drawing nearer said, But Marian told you in that farewell letter which she left for you upon your table, love, and which you read so often, that years must pass away before it could be, did she not? She took a letter from her breast, and kissed it, and said, Yes, that through those intervening years, however happy she might be, she would look forward to the time when you would meet again, and all would be made clear, 
and prayed you trustfully and hopefully to do the same. The letter runs so, does it not, my dear? Yes, Alfred, and every other letter she has written since, except the last, some months ago, in which she spoke of you, and what you then knew, and what I was to learn to-night. He looked towards the sun, then fast declining, and said that the appointed time was sunset. "'Alfred,' said Grace, laying her hand upon his shoulder earnestly, "'there is something in this letter, this old letter which you say I read so often, that I have never told you. But to-night, dear husband, with that sunset drawing near, and all our life seeming to soften and become hushed with the departing day, I cannot keep it secret. What is it, love?' When Marian went away, she wrote me, here, that you had once left her a sacred trust to me, and that now she left you, Alfred, such a trust in my hands, praying and beseeching me, as I loved her and as I loved you, not to reject the affection she believed, she knew, she said, you would transfer to me when the new wound was healed, but to encourage and return it. And make me a proud and happy man again, Grace. Did she say so? She meant to make herself so blessed and honoured in your love, was his wife's answer, as he held her in his arms. Hear me, my dear, he said. No, hear me so. And as he spoke, he gently laid the head she had raised again upon his shoulder. I know why I have never heard this passage in the letter until now. I know why no trace of it ever showed itself in any word or look of yours at that time. I know why Grace, although so true a friend to me, was hard to win to be my wife, and knowing it my own, I know the priceless value of the heart I gird within my arms, and thank God for the rich possession. She wept, but not for sorrow, as he pressed her to his heart. After a brief space he looked down at the child, who was sitting at their feet playing with a little basket of flowers, and bade her look how golden and how red the sun was. "'Alfred,' said Grace, raising her head quickly at these words, the sun is going down. You have not forgotten what I am to know before it sets. You are to know the truth of Marian's history, my love, he answered. All the truth, she said imploringly. Nothing veiled from me any more. That was the promise, was it not? It was, he answered. Before the sun went down on Marian's birthday. And you see it, Alfred. It is sinking fast. He put his arm about her waist, and looking steadily into her eyes, rejoined, the truth is not reserved so long for me to tell, dear Grace. It is to come from other lips. From other lips, she faintly echoed. Yes, I know your constant heart. I know how brave you are. I know that to you a word of preparation is enough. You have said truly that the time is come. It is. Tell me that you have present fortitude to bear a trial, a surprise, a shock, and the messenger is waiting at the gate." "'What messenger?' she said. "'And what intelligence does he bring?' "'I am pledged,' he answered her, preserving his steady look, "'to say no more. "'Do you think you understand me?' "'I am afraid to think,' she said. "'There was that emotion in his face, despite its steady gaze which frightened her. "'Again she hid her own face on his shoulder, trembling, and entreated him to pause a moment. "'Courage, my wife!' When you have firmness to receive the messenger, the messenger is waiting at the gate. The sun is setting on Marian's birthday. Courage, courage, Grace. She raised her head, and looking at him, told him she was ready. As she stood and looked upon him going away, 
Her face was so like Marian's as it had been in her later days at home that it was wonderful to see. He took the child with him. She called her back, she bore the lost girl's name, and pressed her to her bosom. The little creature, being released again, sped after him, and Grace was left alone. She knew not what she dreaded, or what hoped, but remained there motionless looking at the porch by which they had disappeared. Ah, what was that emerging from its shadow, standing on its threshold, that figure with its white garments rustling in the evening air, its head laid down upon her father's breast, and pressed against it to his loving heart? Oh, God, was it a vision that had come bursting from the old man's arms, and with a cry, and with a waving of its hands, and with a wild precipitation of itself upon her in its boundless love, sank down in her embrace? Oh, Marian, Marian, oh, my sister, oh, my heart's dear love, oh, joy and happiness unutterable so to meet again! It was no dream, no phantom conjured up by hope and fear but Marian, sweet Marian, so beautiful, so happy, so unalloyed by care and trial, so elevated and exalted in her loveliness, that as the setting sun shone brightly on her upturned face, she might have been a spirit visiting the earth upon some healing mission. Clinging to her sister, who had dropped upon a seat and bent down over her, and smiling through her teeth, and kneeling close before her with both arms twining round her, and never turning for an instant from her face, and with the glory of the setting sun upon her brow, and with the soft tranquillity of evening gathering around them, Marian at length broke silence, her voice so calm, low, clear, and pleasant, well tuned to the time. "'When this was my dear home, Grace, as it will be now, again, stay, my sweet love, a moment, O oh, Marian, to hear you speak again.' She could not bear the voice she loved so well at first. "'When this was my dear home, Grace, as it will be now, again, I loved him from my soul. I loved him most devotedly. I would have died for him, though I was so young.' I never slighted his affection in my secret breast for one brief instant. It was far beyond all price to me. Although it is so long ago, and past and gone, and everything is wholly changed, I could not bear to think that you, who love so well, should think I did not truly love him once. I never loved him better, Grace, than when he left this very scene upon that very day. I never loved him better, dear one than I did that night when I left here." Her sister, bending over her, could only look into her face and hold her fast. "'But he had gained, unconsciously,' said Marian, with a gentle smile, "'another heart before I knew that I had one to give him. That heart, yours, my sister, was so yielded up in all its other tenderness to me, was so devoted and so noble, that it plucked its love away and kept its secret from all eyes but mine. Ah, what other eyes were quickened by such tenderness and gratitude, and was content to sacrifice itself to me! But I knew something of its depths. I knew the struggle it had made. I knew its high, inestimable worth to him, and his appreciation of it. Let him love me as he would. I knew the debt I owed it. I had its great example every day before me. What you had done for me I knew that I could do, Grace, if I would for you. 
I never laid my head down on my pillow, but I prayed with tears to do it. I never laid my head down on my pillow, but I thought of Alfred's own words on the day of his departure, and how truly he had said, for I knew that by you, that there were victories gained every day in struggling hearts to which these fields of battle were as nothing. Thinking more and more upon the great endurance cheerfully sustained and never known or cared for, that there must be every day an hour in that great strife of which he spoke, my trials seemed to grow light and easy. And he who knows our hearts, my dearest, at this moment, and who knows there is no drop of bitterness or grief, of anything but unmixed happiness, in mine, enabled me to make the resolution that I never would be Alfred's wife, that he should be my brother and your husband, if the course I took could bring that happy end to pass, but that I never would, Grace, I then loved him dearly, dearly, be his wife. Oh, Marian! Oh, Marian! I had tried to seem indifferent to him, and she pressed her sister's face against her own, but that was hard, and you were always his true advocate. I had tried to tell you of my resolution, but you would never hear me, you would never understand me. The time was drawing near for his return. I felt that I must act before the daily intercourse between us was renewed. I knew that one great pang, undergone at that time, would save a lengthened agony to all of us. I knew that if I went away then, that end must follow which has followed, and which has made us both so happy, Grace. I wrote to good Aunt Martha for a refuge in her house. I did not then tell her all, but something of my story, and she freely promised it. While I was contesting that step with myself and with my love of you and home, Mr. Warden, brought here by an accident, became for some time our companion. "'I have sometimes feared of late years that this might have been,' exclaimed her sister, and her countenance was ashy pale. "'You never loved him, and you married him in your self-sacrifice to me.' "'He was then,' said Marian, drawing her sister closer to her, "'on the eve of going secretly away for a long time.' He wrote to me after leaving here, told me what his condition and prospects really were, and offered me his hand. He told me he had seen I was not happy in the prospect of Alfred's return. I believe he thought my heart had no part in that contract, perhaps thought I might have loved him once and did not then, perhaps thought that when I tried to seem indifferent, I tried to hide indifference, I cannot tell. But I wished that you should feel me wholly lost to Alfred, hopeless to him, dead." Do you understand me, love? Her sister looked into her face attentively. She seemed in doubt. I saw Mr. Warden, and confided in his honour, charged him with my secret on the eve of his and my departure. He kept it. Do you understand me, dear? Grace looked confusedly upon her. She scarcely seemed to hear. My love, my sister, said Marian, recall your thoughts a moment. Listen to me. Do not look so strangely on me. There are countries, dearest, where those who would abjure a misplaced passion, or would strive against some cherished feeling of their hearts and conquer it, retire into a hopeless solitude, and close the world against themselves and worldly loves and hopes for ever. When women do so, they assume that name which is so dear to you and me, and call each other sisters. But there may be sisters, Grace, who in the broad world out of doors, and underneath its free sky, and in its crowded places, and among its busy life, and trying to assist and cheer it, and to do some good, learn the same lesson, 
and with heart still fresh and young and open to all happiness and means of happiness, can say the battle is long past, the victory long won, and such a one am I. You understand me now?' Still she looked fixedly upon her and made no reply. "'Oh, Grace, dear Grace,' said Marian, clinging yet more tenderly and fondly to that breast from which she had been so long exiled, "'if you were not a happy wife and mother, if I had no little namesake here, if Alfred, my kind brother, were not your own fond husband, from whence could I derive the ecstasy I feel to-night? But as I left here, so I have returned. My heart has known no other love, my hand has never been bestowed apart from it. I am still your maiden sister, unmarried, unbetrothed, your own old loving Marian, in whose affection you exist alone, and have no partner, Grace." She understood her now. Her face relaxed. Sobs came to her relief. And falling on her neck, she wept and wept, and fondled her as if she were a child again. When they were more composed, they found that the doctor and his sister, good Aunt Martha, were standing near at hand with Alfred. "'This is a weary day for me,' said good Aunt Martha, smiling through her tears as she embraced her nieces. "'For I lose my dear companion in making you all happy. And what can you give me in return for my Marian?' "'A converted brother,' said the doctor. "'That's something, to be sure,' retorted Aunt Martha. "'In such a farce as—' "'No, pray don't,' said the doctor, penitently. "'Well, I won't,' replied Aunt Martha. "'But I consider myself ill-used.' I don't know what's to become of me without my Marian, after we have lived together half a dozen years. You must come and live here, I suppose, replied the doctor. We shan't quarrel now, Martha. Or get married, aunt, said Alfred. Indeed, returned the old lady. I think it might be a good speculation if I were to set my cap at Michael Warden, who I hear has come home much the better for his absence in all respects. But as I knew him when he was a boy, and I was not a very young woman then— Perhaps he mightn't respond. So I'll make up my mind to go and live with Marian, when she marries, and until then it will not be very long, I dare say, to live alone. What do you say, brother? I've a great mind to say it's a ridiculous world altogether, and there's nothing serious in it, observed the poor old doctor. You might take twenty affidavits of it if you chose, Anthony, said his sister, but nobody would believe you with such eyes as those. "'It's a world full of hearts,' said the doctor, hugging his youngest daughter and bending across her to hug Grace, for he couldn't separate the sisters. "'And a serious world with all its folly, even with mine, which was enough to have swamped the whole globe, and a world on which the sun never rises, but it looks upon a thousand bloodless battles that are some set-off against the miseries and wickedness of battlefields, and a world we need be careful how we libel.' Heaven forgive us, for it is a world of sacred mysteries, and its creator only knows what lies beneath the surface of his lightest image. You would not be the better pleased with my rude pen, if it dissected and laid open to your view the transports of this family, long severed and now reunited. Therefore I will not follow the poor doctor through his humble recollection of the sorrow he had had when Marian was lost to him nor will i tell how serious he had found that world to be in which some love deep anchored is the portion of all human creatures nor how such a trifle as the absence of one little unit in the great absurd account had stricken him to the ground 
nor how, in compassion for his distress, his sister had long ago revealed the truth to him, by slow degrees, and brought him to the knowledge of the heart of his self-banished sister, and to that daughter's side. Nor how Alfred Heathfield had been told the truth, too, in the course of that then-current year, and Marian had seen him, and had promised him as her brother that on her birthday in the evening Grace should know it from her lips at last. "'I beg your pardon, doctor,' said Mr. Snitchley, looking into the orchard, "'but have I liberty to come in?' Without waiting for permission, he came straight to Marian and kissed her hand quite joyfully. "'If Mr. Craggs had been alive, my dear Miss Marian,' said Mr. Stitchley, "'he would have had great interest in this occasion. "'It might have suggested to him, Mr. Alfred, "'that her life is not too easy, perhaps, "'that, taken altogether, it will bear any little smoothing we can give it. "'But Mr. Craggs was a man who could endure to be convinced, sir. "'He was always open to conviction. "'If he were open to conviction now—' "'I—' "'This is weakness, Mrs. Stitchley, my dear,' at his summons that lady appeared from behind the door. "'You are among old friends.' Mrs. Stitchley, having delivered her congratulations, took her husband aside. "'One moment, Mr. Stitchley,' said that lady. "'It is not in my nature to rake up the ashes of the departed.' "'No, my dear,' returned her husband. "'Mr. Craggs is—yes, my dear, he is deceased,' said Mr. Stitchley. "'But I ask you, if you recollect,' pursued his wife, "'that evening of the ball, I only ask you that. "'If you do, and your memory has not entirely failed you, Mr. Stitchley, "'and you are not absolutely in your dotage, "'I ask you to connect this time with that, "'to remember how I begged and prayed you on my knees—' "'Upon your knees, my dear,' said Mr. Stitchley. "'Yes,' said Mrs. Stitchley, confidently, "'and you know it, to beware of that man, to observe his eyes.' "'And now to tell me whether I was right, and whether at that moment he knew secrets which he didn't choose to tell.' "'Mrs. Snitchley,' returned her husband in her ear, "'Madam, did you observe anything in my eye?' "'No,' said Mrs. Snitchley sharply. "'Don't flatter yourself.' "'Because, ma'am, that night,' he continued, twitching her by the sleeve, "'it happens that we both knew secrets which we didn't choose to tell, and both knew just the same professionally.' "'And so the less you say about such things the better, Mrs. Snitchley, "'and take this as a warning to have wiser and more charitable eyes another time. "'Miss Marian, I brought a friend of yours along with me. "'Here, mistress!' "'Poor Clemency, with her apron to her eyes, came slowly in, "'escorted by her husband, the latter doleful with the presentiment "'that if she abandoned herself to grief, the nutmeg greater was done for.' "'Now, mistress,' said the lawyer, checking Marian as she ran towards her, and interposing himself between them, "'what's the matter with you?' "'The matter!' cried poor Clemency. When looking up in wonder, and in indignant remonstrance, and in the added emotion of a great roar from Mr. Britton, and seeing that sweet face so well remembered close before her, she stared, sobbed, laughed, cried, screamed, embraced her, held her fast, released her, fell on Mr. Snitchley and embraced him, much to Mrs. Snitchley's indignation, fell on the doctor and embraced him, fell on Mr. Britton and embraced him, and concluded by embracing herself, throwing her apron over her head, and going into hysterics behind it. A stranger had come into the orchard after Mr. Snitchley, and had remained apart near the gate without being observed by any of the group, for they had little spare attention to bestow, 
and that had been monopolized by the ecstasies of clemency. He did not appear to wish to be observed, but stood alone, with downcast eyes, and there was an air of dejection about him, though he was a gentleman of a gallant appearance, which the general happiness rendered more remarkable. None but the quick eyes of Aunt Martha, however, remarked him at all, but almost as soon as she espied him she was in conversation with him. Presently going to where Marian stood with Grace and her little namesake, she whispered something in Marian's ear, at which she started, and appeared surprised, but soon recovering from her confusion, she timidly approached the stranger, in Aunt Martha's company, and engaged in conversation with him too. "'Mr. Britton,' said the lawyer, putting his hand in his pocket and bringing out a legal-looking document while this was going on, "'I congratulate you. You are now the whole and sole proprietor of that freehold tenement, at present occupied and held by yourself as a licensed tavern, or host of public entertainment, and commonly called or known by the sign of the nutmeg grater.' Your wife lost one house through my client, Mr. Michael Warden, and now gains another. I shall have the pleasure of canvassing you for the county one of these fine mornings. Would it make any difference in the vote if the sign was altered, sir? asked Britton. Not in the least, replied the lawyer. Then, said Mr. Britton, handing him back the conveyance, just clap in the words, and thimble, will you be so good? and I'll have the two mottoes painted up in the parlour instead of my wife's portrait. "'And let me,' said a voice behind them, it was the stranger's, Michael Warden's, "'let me claim the benefit of those inscriptions, Mr. Heathfield and Dr. Jedler. I might have deeply wronged you both. That I did not is no virtue of my own. I will not say that I am six years wiser than I was, or better, but I have known at any rate that term of self-reproach.' I can urge no reason why you should deal gently with me. I abused the hospitality of this house, and learnt my own demerits. With a shame I never have forgotten, yet with some profit, too, I would fain hope, from one—he glanced at Marian—to whom I made my humble supplication for forgiveness, when I knew her merit and my deep unworthiness. In a few days I shall quit this place for ever. I entreat your pardon. Do as you would be done by. Forget— and forgive. Time, from whom I have the latter portion of this story, and with whom I have the pleasure of a personal acquaintance of some five-and-thirty years' duration, informed me, leaning easily upon his scythe, that Michael Warden never went away again, and never sold his house, but opened it afresh, maintained a golden mean of hospitality, and had a wife, the pride and honour of that countryside, whose name was Marian. But as I have observed that time confuses facts occasionally, I hardly know what weight to give to its authority. End of the Battle of Life